So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13, and our text today in this session is our verses 31 to 33. So just three verses, 31 through 33, Matthew chapter 13. Listen now to the word of God. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Amen. Now, as I said, our theme over the last several days has been the kingdom of God. And I am going to try to persuade or reaffirm, uh, as case may be, that the most significant religion in the world is going to be Christianity. Now, I already, in a sense, believe it is already the most significant religion in the world, but it's going to become more prominent in the future uh, age to come, in the future generations to come. Now, let's look first at what we seem to see with our eyes. Let's look honestly at the present reality uh, that we face. First of all, I think we would acknowledge to our own lament that Protestant Christianity has been waning in the West, uh, particularly first in Europe, but also we are seeing signs seemingly of that decline in America to secularism, atheism, agnosticism, and theological liberalism. In the Middle East, we see Islam continues to predominate, uh, not only in the Middle East, but also in Northern Africa, even as far as Indonesia. More Muslims actually live in Indonesia than in the Middle East. There are more Muslims in Indonesia than any other country. Then you have the distortions of the gospel uh, that are represented, I would argue, in Roman Catholicism. Uh, remember that when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg, he was not seeking a, uh, so much a, a Protestant movement uh, that came out of Roman Catholicism. He was hoping that Roman Catholicism might indeed be reformed according to the word of God. But, of course, we know that the Council of, Re of Trent uh, rejected that and doubled down on their denial of justification by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we, we and in fact, in, and since the Council of Trent, things have gotten worse. Uh, they've made uh, papal pronouncements with regard uh, to Mary and Mary's sinlessness and, and uh, reaffirmed papal infallibility. You know, papal infallibility was, was not a doctrine of the Roman church for a long time until the 19th century. So things actually even got worse uh, after they rejected Luther's call to repentance. And that shouldn't surprise us. When people reject the light of the truth, things tend to go even worse uh, for those people. You also have the problems of not understanding the gospel and orthodoxy in Europe, Eastern Europe and Russia, of which we prayed in the pastoral prayer, communism. One-fifth of the world's population is under the communist government of China. Think about that. Over one point some billion people in China. And, and, and the church in China, though, has grown rapidly. It's 
now facing significant opposition as we prayed for Pastor Wang Yi, for example. And, you know, he's probably one of many other ministers that have been arrested for the sake of the gospel. North Korea, Cuba. So this looks pretty grim. Um, and, and, it, and it causes one to wonder, what, what did Jesus mean when he was pronounced the Lord of, of the earth? What, what does it mean when we say that he, he is Lord of all? Well, I want us to look here at the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Now, what I'm going to do is, in the first point, just kind of survey of these two parables. Then secondly, I want to make the case that conservative, Bible-believing, Christian church growth is not only possible in the face of all we're facing, but is more than probable. It's promised. I'm going to make the case that conservative, Bible-believing Christianity will continue to grow throughout the world despite all the significant opposition that we have. And then, thirdly, I want to make applications for you. What does this eschatology of encouragement mean for you individually? And I'm going to give you seven final personal points uh, for that. Let's look at the parable, first of all, here. Again, in verse 31. He, Jesus, presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Now, uh, he says in verse 32, this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger <clears throat> excuse me, than the garden plants and becomes a tree, a tree so large that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So notice here, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is as a mustard seed. Now, if you go online and you Google mustard seed, one of the things you'll see is indeed, it is tiny. In fact, depending on the size of your thumb and thumbnail, you can put a lot of mustard seeds just on your thumbnail alone. Um, What Jesus is saying here is the kingdom of heaven, in its inauguration, indeed, began quite small. Jesus had an inner core of 12 disciples. He had another 60, and 72 went out proclaiming the kingdom. And by the opening of the book of Acts, you have about 120 gathered in the upper room. Now, I think there were more converts to Christ in his earthly ministry than that. I'm not just saying that. But it does give you a sense of the smallness. After three years of public ministry, the Son of God has 120 people showing up for the prayer meeting. And yet what happens? Jesus Christ Having made his appearances unto men for a period of 40 days, we are told he ascends. And, you know, the Reformed Church needs to make more of the ascension. And here's why. The ascension is as significant redemptively in many ways as the resurrection because it's the ascension that is the enthronement of Christ. This is where Christ now, who was born a king, remember the Magi bringing the gifts suitable for a king? This is where, though, the king finally is coronated. And in celebration to the coronation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ graciously and wondrously gives us the Spirit. You remember at David's coronation and Solomon's dedication to the temple, how they gave bread and raisin cakes to the people of God. what What does the Lord do? He gives us his own Spirit. He pours out the Spirit on the church. And Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. And suddenly, he has more converts in one sermon that Jesus had in his earthly ministry. Now, that's not because Peter's a better preacher. 
And it's not because Peter's a better man. But it's because Jesus has given the Spirit. And we, including myself here today, I have the opportunity to preach with the help of the Holy Spirit. You have the ability to hear with ears that can hear because the Holy Spirit has been given. And this, of course, is why the church grows to 3,000 in a single sermon. The next day it's 2,000. I mean, deacons, you thought you had seating problems today. I mean, imagine <laughs> you, we had 5,000 people, uh, you know, in this coming week uh, and that need to be accommodated next Sunday here. This is real church growth taking place here. But this was just the beginning. Jesus tells us that just like the mustard seed, it begins small, but it begins to grow and it begins to become, and he says, not just a, any plant in the garden, but he says it, it becomes the greatest tree. Now, if you've never seen a mustard tree, if you're a suburbanite like I grew up, I don't know anything about anything agriculture. I'm, I, you know, I learn what little I know um, by books and stuff. And, and, uh, but look, Google the mustard seed tree. Google the mustard tree and, and look at pictures of it. it. It is a huge tree. Jesus says it becomes the largest thing in the garden. It's way bigger than your tomato plants. Um, and, and so big, in fact, that the birds of the air come and they build homes. And that there seems to be covenantal blessings that, that come with the growth of the kingdom of God. And then, of course, if that parable was not sufficient to drive the point home, what does he say? He says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And here a woman, she takes some of the leaven and she in three small packs puts it in with the flour kneads it and puts it in the oven and the leaven just does its thing it does its work and the bread rises now what i want to argue is that this was always the plan of god for his kingdom that the kingdom of god i hope you you i hope you have heard in several of the sermons where our speakers have been making the point that the kingdom of God is among us. It's a continuation of what God had begun in Israel. And remember that you and I who, and I'm speaking here to those of us who are Gentiles, we have been engrafted into the tree of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Branches were cut off that we might be put into Israel. And so it's not that we are replacing Israel. We've been brought into Israel. And now we have a circumcision made without hands, a circumcision of the heart. Uh, we have now the Spirit of God within us where we cry out, Abba, Father. We have the adoption. We are children of Abraham now by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is saying here that he is going to continue to add from all over the world people who are going to be brought in and this goes back, you know, to Genesis chapter 15. This is where I want to get some biblical support here for what we're looking at. Turn with me, Genesis 15, if you want, in your Bible. This is, of course, where God gives the great promise to Father Abraham. And you remember the story. Abraham is aged. Sarah is aged. They have no natural biological children together. No doubt, 
They have been praying for years and, and decades that maybe God would give them a child, maybe like Simeon, right? Or uh, Zachari- Zachariah, rather, and Elizabeth. And here God comes and he says, Do not fear, Abram. Verse 1, I am a shield to you. He says, Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, Oh Lord, God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him, that is, God took Abram outside and said, Now look toward the heavens. Now there are no streetlights in this day here. There's no, there's no light pollution in the, where Abram's living. And he says, look up in the middle of the night, and he says, I want you to count the stars. If you are able to count them, he said, so shall your descendants be. Did you know that was the promise upon which Abram believed and was justified? Where, where Paul helps us in Romans to appreciate the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's argued from this very text. You old Abram, with your old wife, you are going to have a great multitude of descendants. And he believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, as we, we move through our, our Bible, uh, we saw from the Psalms here, just to refresh us a little bit. Look at Psalm 2 again in your Bible. So we have the promise given to Abram that he's going to be the father of many nations, though they're childless presently. And then a promise is given, we saw in Psalm 2. Remember what Pastor Montgomery showed us in verse 7? In the words of the Son, he said, the Son is saying, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He, that is, the Father said to me, the Son, the Father said to Christ, you are my Son, Today I have begotten you. Remember the apostles, they took that phrase, today I have begotten you, and they applied it to the resurrection in the book of Acts. But notice the promise in verse 8. Again, ask of me. That is, the Father is telling the Son, Jesus is saying, the Father said to me, the Father said to the Son, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Why? Because you're going to suffer, you're going to die on the cross for the sins of your people, and I'm going to raise you from the dead, and I'm going to seat you at my right hand, and I will make you king, and I will give you the nations, and the very ends of the earth is your possession, and you will redeem them. You will bring them to yourself. Look at Psalm 22. Now, all of us, I know, we know Psalm 22 because it speaks so explicitly about the cross. But for our purposes today, I don't want us to focus on the first part of Psalm 22 where it speaks about the crucifixion of Jesus, that my hands and feet are pierced, but I want you to see the result of the cross in verse 25 and following. After the first part of Psalm 22 where David prophesies about the cross, he then says in verse 25, For you comes my praise in the great assembly. 
he's going to praise God and the assembly of God's people is going to be great. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. There's a promise for you who seek the Lord. You will praise the Lord. But here in verse 27, it says, let your heart live forever. Then verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Now stop right there. You see what God is doing in this ongoing revelation as you work your way through the Bible in the Old Testament? What's God doing? God is saying, Abram, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And then David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of the promise now that is not only given to Abram, but is yes and amen in whom? In Christ. And now we know something more about the initial promise to Abram. The initial promise was what? I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And now what is, the, what is added to that promise? All the families of the nations will worship before you. That is, the promise given to Abraham is expanded here in Psalm 2. We begin to understand that these are not just going to be people who are ethnically tied to Abram. It's not just his natural descendants that the promise to Abram is, is pointing us to. Look at Psalm 47 in your Bible. Psalm 47. We get more. In Psalm 47, verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. Notice here, who is to clap their hands and shout to God? All peoples. Why? For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. The great king. So all peoples, all you people in China, Australia, Vietnam, Laos, North Korea, Indonesia, United States, Canada, didn't forget you Canadians, Canada, Latin America, uh, Europe, Africa, shout to the Lord, for the God has done great things. He is a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations, plural, nations under us. For why? He chooses our inheritance for us. What's our inheritance? Our inheritance is Christ. He chooses us for Christ. He elects you. Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1. He chooses you before the foundation of the earth to belong to Christ, to fulfill the promise to Abraham. Verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. Not just western nations. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And then it goes back. It says, look at verse 9. Can you believe this? The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. All these people from all these nations are coming together for what? To assemble themselves as the children of Abraham. Because God had promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. But that is going to be realized how? Through Jesus Christ. Because the father has promised the son what? All these nations. We sang it, but just look at it real quickly. Psalm 67 in your Bible. Psalm 67. 
in the scriptures. God, be gracious to us and bless us. Cause his face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known. What's the way? Jesus is the way. What's the way to be known on the earth? Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That your way may be known on the earth. Your salvation among some of the nations. Nope. Your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples in America praise you. No, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. Look at the last one. God blesses us. Last verse. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Pastor Zacharias showed us in Psalm 72, the reign of Christ, the greater Solomon. Look at verse 8, Psalm 72, verse 8. May he rule from sea to sea. And as Pastor Zacharias said, Solomon didn't fulfill that. David didn't fulfill that. Rehoboam certainly didn't fulfill it. Even the good kings, Hezekiah, Josiah, they didn't fulfill this. Who's fulfilling this? What son of David is going to fulfill verse 8? He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the very ends of the earth. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Verse 11, let all the kings bow down before him. Just like Psalm 2, right? Kiss the son, hearken ye judges, you princes, you kings, kiss the son lest ye perish. What do we see here in verse 11? Same thing, let all the kings bow down. You better kiss the sun, you kings, you presidents, you prime ministers, you dictators. You better bow down. Jesus Christ is king. This is, we are pronouncing this today in the 21st century that Jesus is king. He's been gone for 2,000 years, but don't let that delay make you think that he is absent from the world. His spirit has been given, and he is calling everyone within the sound of the gospel preaching to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. And I would be remiss if I didn't invite every one of you to believe in Jesus Christ. If anybody's here who has not yet bowed down in Jesus Christ, to please do it now. You don't have to walk an aisle. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I'm not going to make you sign a card, but believe in Jesus Christ. Because today's the day of salvation. We know not what a day may bring. So believe in Jesus Christ while you have the opportunity, while the door is still open, while the Spirit is moving. While the Spirit is calling, respond to the call of the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life will be changed. You'll be made a new creature. You'll be adopted into the family of God. You'll be a child of Abraham. You'll begin to understand what these promises are all about. And you'll begin to see, wow, God is so gracious and loving. He has included me in this great kingdom he's building through across all the nations, transnationally, and uh, across all, all centuries. Psalm 86, verse 9 and 10, you don't have to turn there. All nations whom thou hast made shall what? Shall come and worship. I remember reading that in the back of a car when I was in seminary. I I wrote it out on a three by five index card. I, I saw that verse in private Bible study. I said, that's an incredible verse. I I wrote it down and I kept it in my pocket a lot of times. I pull it out. All nations whom thou hast made come and worship. Come and, and bow down. You have the, we don't have time to look at all of these individually, but you have Isaiah chapter 9. We think about in, in um, Christmas time where we have the promise of, of the coming 
Messiah and, and the government will rest uh, upon his shoulders. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That is, the kingdom will rest on the shoulders of, of this child, of this son of David. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, all the names of God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is, this is one who is fully God. There will be no end. Listen now to verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This began when what? When a child was born. Not when the millennium began after a secret rapture. And he took some earthly, as Chris Trevel said, earthly throne in Palestine. No, the kingdom is inaugurated with the incarnation of Christ. Then in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 9 through 12, Isaiah 11, 9 through 12. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, there's coming a day, you know, when we will not need to say to our neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know him. Now, I do believe, I think that's speaking out the consummated state. But how do you get to the consummated state without history? How do you get to the end without the means? You tell me. How do you get a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation if the gospel isn't going to be having a large measure of success in the earth. You can't. You can't get there. The nations will resort to the root of Jesse. They will stand as a signal for the peoples. His resting place will be glorious. And, and we could go on. There are others and we don't have time. Let me just tell you about one I love. You can look it up on your own in Ezekiel chapter 47. I love this picture. Because Ezekiel is preaching judgment, 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 judgment <laughs> for many chapters. And then at the end, he finally gives some prophecies about hope and restoration. And he sees, of all things, the temple. And remember, you know, Ezekiel's a post-exilic prophet. So this is a guy who's in exile, temple's destroyed, Babylon's ruined everything. And, and he sees the temple. And he sees this water, though, coming out. Now, if we would see water coming out of the foundation of our home, we'd be worried, right? But this is not something to be worried about. This is rather a great promise that God's giving. And how does the water begin? It's just a trickle coming out. Remind you of anything? Maybe like a mustard seed? Maybe a little peck of leaven? Just a little bit of water. What's that? And then he goes down further down the way, and what happens? Oh, well, it's become a little rivulet. A little bit more water. It's building as we go. He goes, up, he goes further down. Well, suddenly now it's a creek. Look at that. He puts his feet in it. Water's running over his creek. Isn't that nice? He goes further down, and then it's up to his knees. And then later, it's up to his hips, his chest. And he said, I can't afford it. It comes this beautiful river that fills the world. 
You know, John pictures it as, as freshening all the waters of the world. And again, what is the, what is the temple? We, we told you, didn't we, at this conference what the temple is. The temple is a type of Christ. It's a picture of the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ and Christ's giving of his spirit to the world. And it began small in an upper room. But it, it, as, as it progresses, it, it becomes larger and larger and it encompasses more and more people. Now, you know, this, of course, takes time. And that's why Peter says, you know, don't let the skeptics browbeat you by saying, oh, I thought your Savior was coming. What's going on? You know, I thought, thought you, you, you know, Presbyterians who, who believe in larger, short, larger Catechism 191, what, what happened to that? And listen, Peter says, look, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. And you don't go out in your backyard and every week, do you, and look at your tree that you planted? Huh? Did it grow today? No, you don't. As I said to my church a week or two ago, I, I said, what happens is what? You plant the tree, you move into your house, you plant the tree in your yard, you know, that's our first tree. And, and you know, you, you maybe you, you take your, you know, your Christmas picture out there or whatever, Thanksgiving picture, holiday picture, 4th of July, and you put it in your photo album or, you know, Facebook, whatever. And 10 years later, what happens? You look at that picture and you're like, oh, wow. You know, look how small our family was back then. Look at how small that tree was. But it grew, didn't it? And over time, if enough decades go by, you know, you've long sold the house. And, you know, you've gone on with your life and you've married, you had kids. And, and you say, kids, come on, I'm going to show you where... Where dad grew up. I'm going to show you where mom grew up. Show you that tree we planted. And it's huge. It's taking up the whole front yard. And Jesus is saying, this is what the, the kingdom is like. Now, I, I do want to address a few things because I know that um, there, there are passages that cause people to pause, for example. And, and I do want to address those quickly, and then I want to get to the applications here. Let's just take a couple of these. Turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 7. Look at verse 13 and 14. Because you might say, but pastor, what about this verse? That sounds neat. That sounds good. I'd like to believe you. I mean, you know, you got to wonder about a Christian who doesn't want to hold this eschatology. Even if they are persuaded that this isn't what the Scripture is saying, you know, they should, they should at least concede this is what they wish, right? I mean, who doesn't want the gospel to have great success? Who doesn't? What kind of Christian doesn't want to see people get saved? What kind of Christian doesn't want to see, you know, even the majority of people come to faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, if heaven rejoices over a solitary sinner who converts and believes in Christ, how much more joy? I don't want a little joy. I want a lot of joy. And, and I think that's what we're going to get. Look at uh, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, some people will say, Aha, see, Pastor, all your high-octane millennialism there. I just punctured it right there with those two verses. Well, let me suggest 
this to you. Uh, B.B. Warfield, who was a post-millennialist, uh, suggests that these two verses here, you have to understand them in their context. And what is Jesus doing here in this context? He's speaking to his present generation. That th- these two verses do not represent all of the eschatology that Jesus has to teach. What Jesus is saying to that generation, remember he does it in Matthew 24. He urges them, look, if you see the Roman authorities at the gate, you run. Don't go in the house to get something. Run. Head to the hills because destruction is coming. Now, even our dispensational friends, they don't seem to see that and they keep thinking that's referring to the second coming. But no, Jesus is speaking to that original audience. He's telling his fellow Jews, many and most who will, what? Reject him. That he is the way. And if they don't believe in him, they will perish. Um, look at uh, one other passage. Look at 2 Thessalonians Two, and then I'm going to make some applications for us. Second Thessalonians 2. Here's another one that... And, and by the way, I recommend you read B.B. Warfield on those verses if you get a chance, if you'd like. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come about... It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. Now, there are different uh, attempts to explain this, but here is my take. Verse 3, how do you have an apostasy if your whole nation is composed of Muslims? If your nation is composed chiefly of Buddhists, Shintoists, Animists, how do you have an apostasy? What does apostasy presuppose? Apostasy has to presuppose what? An assemblance of faith. Now, think with me. Would it not make sense that if the Spirit of God continues to be poured out in great power and revivals over time and history, that as more and more people become Christians, you also have more tares coming into the church as well, more chaff coming into the church as well? I mean, don't we see that here in the South a lot? You know, we have the reputation of being the Bible Belt. And, you know, sometimes being in the church is good for business in the South. Putting that fish symbol on your business card, right? You can't have an apostasy. You can't have a falling away unless, unless there was what? At least some public allegiance to Christ. So I would argue that this doesn't militate against an optimistic outlook of eschatology. It jibes with it. And basically, the scriptures, I would suggest, seem, in my view, seem to be teaching that as the gospel goes out, as many are converted savingly to Christ, you will have some who feign obedience to Christ. We we see that in, I think it's Psalm 66. Many will feign obedience unto you, O Lord. Well, 
let me give it um, some application here for us individually. Uh, and I'm going to give you seven here. Number one, you know, whatever your eschatological view is, even if you're, you know, a historic pre-mill, I, that's not for me, but let's just say, even if that's your view, um, or maybe you're not as, uh, you know, optimistic as a non-millennialist, um, I want you at least to be encouraged. There's a lot to be encouraged here. And as I mentioned Friday night, quoting Gavin Beers, our eschatology does not come by way of our eyes. It comes by faith. You remember Sarah? Sarah might have been a good dispensationalist. She's sitting in the tent, standing at the doorway of the tent, eavesdropping. And the angels say to Abram, hey, Abram, you remember that promise in Genesis 15? And Abram's like, yeah. Sarah's going to hold that child in a year. And she guffaws in the tent. (laughs) What happened? She didn't believe the promise, did she? And the angel of the Lord rebukes her. Why did you laugh? You think this is impossible for God? And I think a lot of people are like that when it comes to eschatology. Akafal. Christianity is going to spread throughout the whole world and become the largest tree in the garden? No. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Our only hope is getting secretly raptured out of here. And leave it to the tribulation and then the second the millennium. Uh, I think that's unbelief. I think Abram and Sarah are called to put their trust in what God says in his word, even if it seems incredible. I would say it's the same for us. If it seems incredible, we might want to consider the power of God rather than the weakness in, the small, in, in, in resorting to the smallness of our faith, saying it's not going to happen. Because I can see with my eyes. I can read my newspaper. I watch CNN. That's not where we're going to get our eschatology. Oh, ye of little faith. Isn't that what Jesus had to say so many times to Israel? Why did you not believe? Why were you so slow of heart? Why didn't you go to the prayer meetings and pray and intercession? I gave you all these huge promises. I told you, give me no rest until I make Zion the praise of the earth. And you can't show up for a prayer meeting? I said, come wear me out like an unrighteous judge. And you're asleep. I said, bother me like a neighbor who doesn't have any bread. And suddenly he's got all these people over at his house and he has nothing to serve them. And he goes to his neighbor and knocks on the door. I said, Jesus is saying, that's what you're supposed to be doing. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with the eschatology? It's you. You're the problem. If you can't get around this, you can't get your hands around these promises. Yeah, these promises are large. And and they're supposed to, faith is required. (laughs) Faith is required to live the Christian life. We have to be believing and not unbelieving. Be encouraged. You're on the right side. You're going to win. You're going to be in heaven. Your name, don't rejoice at the miracles. Rejoice. Your name is written in the book of life. You're going to win. You're on the right side of history. How many times do we have to hear that? 
You guys are on the wrong side of history. No, we're on the right side of history. And we're on the right side of eternity. Be encouraged. It's easy to get discouraged. Listen, I get depressed all the time. I've got a melancholic streak that I love to nurse. <laughs> okay? But we're not supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to, in the midst of despondency and trials and tribulations, and listen, I don't want anybody here to think that I'm saying we're just bouncing from victory to victory. The Christian life is hard, it's sorrowful, it's miserable. There's going to be betrayals, there's going to be apostasies, there's going to be huge disappointments, there's going to be providential setbacks. Things are not going to work out in life as you maybe had planned. And yet, through it all, God is building his church. You know, Job was not called to understand what was going on. He was called to what? Trust the Lord in the midst of his inability to understand. That's the same for us. We have to trust in the eschatological promise of God that we don't understand. Lord, I want Jesus to be glorified. Why does America seem to be circling around the drain right now? Lord, put the plug in the drain. Stop it and reverse it. Turn on the faucet. Fill up the sink again. We might not live to see that. But be encouraged. You know, I've told our church here that the, the pilgrims, when they came over here and they settled in New England, they saw themselves, it's in their documents, they saw themselves as stones to be laid down in the dirt of New England to be stepped on by others coming behind them. They viewed that even their distress and their sorrow and their sufferings and the hardships, and they lost 50% of their people that first winter. But they said, we're not just doing this for ourselves. We're not doing this just to live our best life now. We're doing this so that future generations may be Christians that the West might be evangelized, that this might be one of the nations that praises the Lord. You see, if if you're not encouraged, it's going to be hard for you to suffer well. So you're going to have to stay encouraged. Number two, be joyful. Along with take courage, be joyful. Yeah, and that also being said, how many times does God have to tell the people, take courage, take courage, do not fear, do not fear, take courage. Joshua, take courage, I'm with you. Go in, take the nations. And we need that. We, we, we need that. Listen, we are not called to become this kind of fortress to which we're retreating. We're supposed to be salt, and that means get out of the salt shaker. It means get out there. Engage the culture. And, and, and evangelize the culture. So be encouraged. Be joyful. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, Proverbs tells us, you know, that joy is a great medicine. And it's going to help you. And you're going to need to be joyful even when there are tears. The joy of the Lord. Be joyful. Let the promises of God cause your heart to be full of joy. Number three, be zealous for the Lord. You got all these great promises from God. He's building his kingdom. The gates of hell are not going to win. Be zealous. Go out there and be zealous for Christ. Number four, be faithful to him. Don't compromise. Be faithful. Uh, That was number four. Number five, be prayerful. You know, uh, we need to be praying. 
Our prayer meetings, as Sinclair Ferguson has said, it, it, the prayer meetings are like those guys who go down into the coal mines and, and they, they chip away and they drill away and, and they bore away at the hard rock. And he said, too often, what a lot of Christians want to do is that they want to be the ones who set the dynamite and then turn the charge. But you can't set the dynamite if you don't bore down into the earth first. And that's what the prayer meaning, meeting does. It, it bores down and, and takes the promises of God and drills into the situation. Number six. Now this one may say, seem a little strange to some ears, but go with me here. Be entrepreneurial. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean by that, I'm not talking necessarily business, entrepreneurship. Though, listen, if that's your calling, do that. But what I mean is, look for ministry. Be entrepreneurial in ministry. Now, one of the great things about this country is you, you have this liberty to, to go out and do something. Look, we, we were still hemming and hawing about this conference a few months ago. And... We finally just said, let's just do it. I, I thought, if I can get 40 people here, we won't embarrass ourselves. You know? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and just, just do it. Now, you know, do it in decent and good order. Do it, you know, um, as, as you need to, if it, if it involves a church to, with the session's help and permission and deacons. But, you know, there, there's a lot of ministry out there to be done, and it doesn't always have to be... Uh, coming, the ideas don't have to come from above in order to do it. You, you just go out there, you know, join that crisis pregnancy center and, and do the ministry. Uh, you know, do the, the, the foster care, whatever it might be. But uh, look for ways in which your gifts can be used there. And then finally, be evangelistic. The Great Commission, I um, am fond of saying, it is not a treadmill exercise. You know the treadmill, right? Everybody's running treadmills in January. Everybody gets their New Year's resolution. I'm going to the gym, and they get on the treadmill. Well, you run in place 20, 30 minutes, and then you turn your treadmill off, and you're still in the same place. The Great Commission is not a treadmill exercise just to see if you would run. The Great Commission has been given to the church because Jesus intends to do what he said. Jesus intends to evangelize the world. He, tends, he intends to bring the gospel to the whole world, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Revelation 7, 9, John beheld a great multitude that no one could number, dressed in the white garments of Christ from every little tribe and every great city. 